Let the lower lights be burning. Sweet hour of prayer. The Paradise Valley. We just sang all three of those songs. And haven't the messages been superb? Haven't the encouragement? Hasn't it been a tremendous thing? We certainly have not only admonished and encouraged each other, but those songs have been our desire of praising God and His will. We're thankful to be able to come together on this second Sunday in the month of January this year, and we're thankful for the blessing of the Bible. And for the next few moments, may I invite you to give attention with me to at least one of the topics that for some is a matter of controversy. In fact, as you'll notice on this next slide, it's my hope that during this current calendar year to devote the second Sunday of each month to giving some consideration to topics that often, it seems, have been sore subjects of controversy. Throughout the year, we're going to talk about things like speaking in tongues and matters, you can see on the slide, like marriage and divorce. Issues which not only are certainly quite practical, but there's much division, much disunity, much consideration in the religious world about some of these topics. In fact, so strong is the division at some times that it wars mightily against unity. May I say that the topic of the day today fits in that category certainly. Baptism. I think you and I are all aware that that is really a sore subject of disunity in the mind of many. There are differences of consideration, differences of opinion, differences of thought, and there's a wide degree of disagreement about what it is, what it accomplishes, the purpose for which it's done. Well, why don't we at least take a moment, just as we give thought to these controversial topics. As you can see on that slide, our goal in all of these is going to be, let's remove the clutter. Let's remove the confusion. Let's take away the opinions of men and just to let the Bible speak for itself. What does it say? I think we're all in agreement that what the Scriptures say is going to be the final matter. It's what our interest is. And so why don't we start the lesson like this. What are some things that you may have heard about baptism? You may have had friends or acquaintances. You may have read articles. You may have even had discussions wherein certain elements certain aspects of baptism ended up a part of that discussion and some of these things might have been heard. As I prepared that slide, in many ways I felt that it does a great injustice to what might possibly be heard. I only listed a small, small amount. I'm sure you could greatly extend some of the things I said. You may have heard someone say, baptism is a good thing, but let's face it, it's not necessary to salvation. Have you ever heard someone say that? Have you at least heard someone make the point connected to that idea? There are many religious groups today. Our Baptist friends are one of them who fit right into that category. They will at length speak about how good it is to be baptized, but they don't think it's necessary for salvation. Are they right about that? What about the second one? There are those who will strongly and so lovingly speak about baptism and the opportunity of presentation it presents. And they'll say, it is a fantastic manifestation of the grace of God as far as an outward display to others present as to the change you've made in your life. Is that all baptism is, really? Is it no more than that? Is that an apt description of it based on the Bible? We'll see. There are others who will say, well, baptism is good. I don't have any disagreements with it. I think I'll wait till a more convenient time. I will make a selection of some time, perhaps at some point in the future, but it's not urgent today. 
again, that might make one wonder. What about the last one? This one is maybe somewhat more strong in terms of the appreciation some might make. There are those who will make the argument, look, baptism is a work. And the Bible says nobody is saved exactly by work. So let's face it, it can't be needful for salvation. What do you think about that one? I'm sure we've all heard that one, at least couched in various kinds of language. Let's see, as we look at all of those topics, and yea, some others as well, as we think about the topic of baptism today. I'm going to try to do in the next, oh, 25 minutes or so, settling all of that and then some. And I say, I, it's the Bible. It isn't me. Any of us could do it. We're simply going to ask, what saith the Scripture? Romans 4, verse 3. We really couldn't care less what men may have said, nor could we care less what other scholarly opinions might well have been. What does God teach about baptism? This next slide will be one that I hope will develop the last point on that current slide before you. I made the point earlier, these controversial topics have served in a dramatic way to divide people. People have different opinions, and so they don't, they don't agree with each other, and baptism has been one of them. I hope we each will appreciate by the time this lesson is finished, baptism was always in the mind and plan of the Lord to be a matter of unity. group of people who experience the exact same thing. That's what baptism is supposed to be. Everybody does exactly the same thing to become a Christian. No different, nothing. And yet, because men have divided that point and had differing ideas concerning it, there's, there's differences in appreciation, differing denominations, if you please, about what they view on this subject. This next slide, as it develops that, goes in this direction. Could I invite you to think about some facts? Don't you love facts? Those aren't up for opinion. They aren't up for discussion because they're facts. I think all of us thrive on the thought of facts. What are some of them concerning baptism? First of all, the one I thought would be an apt one to begin would be this one. Why don't we use Ephesians 4, 5 to at least prompt our consideration? In that wonderful passage wherein Jesus Himself is described, among other things, we have the Apostle Paul presenting this. There is one body, even as you're called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. There are seven ones that are described and presented to us in that passage, and one of them is this one, one baptism. May I invite each of us to give an element of emphasis to that truth, you and I then must be cautious and mindful of anyone who would present or lecture or at least offer the thought that there are multiple baptisms, all of which are important for salvation today. Could I throw one out at least in passing? There are those who will say that baptism in water is important. Others will say baptism in the Holy Spirit is important too for salvation. Now, it can't be both ways. That's two, not one. And the last I counted, those aren't the same. There is one baptism, Paul wrote, by inspiration. That means as it relates to salvation, as it's connected to a proper standing before God today, there is but one baptism.
Isn't that a great conclusion? As you pass by that one on the top, why don't we transition to Romans 6. Beginning in verse 3 of that chapter, we find Paul again making these observations about the topic of baptism. He began the chapter in verse 1 by saying, the fact that as you and I engage in activities, we can't continue in a life of sin thinking that we can please God that way. And then in verse 3, he points out the beauty of baptism. May I invite you to notice verses 3, 4, and 5 in that chapter. As I read that, listen to the statement that, in, that therein is made. Romans 6, beginning in verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into His death. We might initially notice baptism is what is into Christ. That immediately removes this thought of baptism being an outward show of an inward grace. It is something that puts one into Christ. The preposition into has been a fantastic and it's an important one, isn't it? We've often made use of it. A person may be out there in the parking lot and you could live the rest of your life there. But to come into the building, you have to come from out there to in here. That's into. And we learn in the grammar consideration that into is what describes a change in location. A person is baptized into Christ. Let's read on to verse number 4. Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We immediately notice then that baptism is a burial. That's exactly the word the Holy Spirit has chosen to describe it. It's a burial that immediately puts aside. It's not sprinkling of water. It is not a dipping, if you please. Otherwise, it's not pouring some into a hand and dumping it on the head of a person. That wouldn't qualify. The Greek word that's there means to immerse. Baptism is an immersion just like a burial is. You and I would be quite angry at the funeral home director if he took our loved one's corpse and sprinkled some dirt on it and claimed he had buried them. That's not a burial. Or if he took our loved one's corpse and poured a little dirt on it and claimed that was a burial. It's not. Burial is a submersion, an immersion, in that case in, 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 in soil, in this case in water. Baptism is a wonderful experience, isn't it? Notice what happens in the next verse, verse 5. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, so shall we also in the likeness of His resurrection. Doesn't that point out, as you'll notice on the slide, then the argument, or at least the discussion, for many throughout the ages, well, can't you just sprinkle some water and let that be enough? Wouldn't that qualify? The answer is no. First of all, that's not like a burial, as we've already noted. But secondly, it's a different Greek word. The New Testament does have passages that do use the word sprinkle. But this is not one of them. I've invited you to notice on the slide in Hebrews 9.21, the Greek word for sprinkle does occur, and it's a different Greek word than this one. Had the Holy Spirit meant sprinkle, that's what He said. What about the word for pour? It occurs also in Matthew 14.3, and it's different than this one. It doesn't mean that. 
that kind of discussion, or at least that kind of distinction, then is one which the Bible will take care of. Isn't it true? You and I would expect that if baptism is an immersion in water, it would require a lot of water. Isn't that what the text of the Bible says? When John the Baptist was baptizing, in John 3.23, didn't he baptize where there was a lot of water? That's what the Bible does say, isn't it? One final thing about that point you might note is this one. As you think with me about how the Word of God describes it, isn't it true that baptism is thus necessary? It's essential for salvation. You can't be saved without it. How do we know that? Look at what the Lord said. Brother John read just a moment ago from Matthew 28. Let's note that text as well as the one I've encouraged you to consider with me here. In that passage of Matthew 28, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you all the way even unto the end of the world. Isn't it fantastic to note then that I, the resurrected Lord with a nail-pierced hand told those, those 11 apostles at that time, you go to all the world and here's the message. You preach the gospel and he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Question, how, is important, how important is baptism? In Mark's version, in Mark 16, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Question, who is saved? The person that believes and is baptized. You take out either one of them, the person that is not saved, cannot be saved. One final one might be that beautiful passage of Acts 22. Isn't it amazing to notice Paul's own description of his conversion? Here was a man, namely Paul, who offered the following thought, here's what I did, and here was the way in which it developed. Ananias came to me and he said, Saul, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Baptism is the way to call on the name of God. It is the experience in which sins are washed away. Saul's sins were not washed away prior to his baptism. He hadn't called on God prior to his baptism. That same thing is descriptive of you and me today, isn't it? Isn't it true then that in light so far of what we've seen, doesn't it challenge us to reflect upon the man known as Felix in Acts 24 verse 25? There was a man who heard Paul's presentation. He listened to Paul speak and to preach if he please. And Paul spoke about some mighty, mighty subjects. He preached on righteousness, temperance, and the judgment to come. And Felix said this, Go thy way. When there's a more convenient season, I'll call for thee. There's a man that waited. There's a man that was going to put it off till another better time. And I'm sure all of us have wondered, did the more convenient season ever come? Did a better time ever arrive, or did he die lost? The Word of God doesn't say. We can sure hope that he obeyed the gospel at some point. As you and I consider baptism so far, isn't it amazing? The directness in which the Word of God has presented it. What about some additional facts? So far, 
as we've looked at those facts, let's add these to them. I mentioned a moment ago that passage, or the consideration that some would make about baptism being a work and that we're not saved by works. There are many who will use that as the prime argument against baptism. Why don't you and I ask it this way? Is that the way the Bible describes it? At the top of that slide, I've asked you to note this. Baptism is never in the Bible presented as a work of merit. That is to say, it is not something you and I do that puts us deserving of God's grace. Rather, the description of baptism is always this. It's a condition that one, again, meets in order to receive the blessings attached to it. And that makes baptism in that light no different than a number of other things that you might have thought about. May I ask about belief? To my knowledge, there's nobody in religious character anywhere who would argue against the importance of belief. Nobody's going to say you can be saved without belief. And yet in John 6, 29, Jesus said belief is a work. That's what He said. So the same argument, if you're going to follow that one, that would mean that you don't have to be baptized. Well, you don't have to believe either because it's a work, Jesus said. You and I know that the Lord wasn't presenting it in that way as an essence of you don't have to do it. We do have to believe. In Hebrews eleven six, But without faith it's impossible to, to, to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and must believe that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. We must believe. Well, one more time, belief is shown to us as an appreciation, a condition for the reception of the blessings that the Lord offers. May I offer the same thing is true of repentance. Repentance is described to you and me in the Bible, and could I offer this thought? As far as the steps of salvation, by far, the one that's the most difficult is repentance. It's not hard to let somebody dip in water. That's relatively easy. Repentance is the hard part. Changing my life. Being willing to do things differently than what I've done. To think differently than the way I've thought. To act differently than the way I've acted. That's the hard part. And isn't it interesting? People won't fuss so much about repentance. But it's the much easier thing of baptism. Isn't it interesting on that slide? I've listed for you several passages. All of which help us see that these elements involved in salvation are things that the Bible presents that you and I must do. We must believe in the Lord. Jesus said in John 8, 24, Except ye believe I am He, ye shall die in your sins. That's rather direct, isn't it? I can go through life and God will bless me with a lot of physical things. And I may never believe in Him the way He would demand that I do it. And I can die that way and be forever lost. By the same token, repentance the Lord demanded of me. In Luke 13, 3, Jesus Himself said, Nay, but except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. You and I can proceed through life. Anybody can and never repent. We can die lost that way too. What about confession? We read in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, that confession is made with the mouth unto salvation. Notice it's unto salvation. 
Confession by itself won't save us, but it's a part of the process that's involved in the salvation process. Finally, we come to baptism. Baptism has these others as the prerequisites to it. You have to believe before you're baptized. That's what the Lord said in Mark 16, 16. You have to repent before you're baptized. That's what Peter told them on the day of Pentecost. Repent and be baptized. You have to confess before you're baptized. That's what the eunuch did in Acts 8. That's why you and I don't baptize someone first and then take their confession. That's why we don't baptize them first and then ask if they've repented. The order wouldn't be right. As the Word of God describes this, it brings us to about the middle of that slide. So what's the purpose of baptism? Why do it? Well, for sure, we could already say, Jesus said so, that's enough. But aren't we told something dramatic in Acts 2.38 that offers us the penultimate reason as to why we do it? Let's revisit what Peter said. These people who had been a part of putting Jesus to death not many weeks earlier, they now had heard Peter and the others preach that dramatic set of sermons that day, and they became convicted in their heart. We put the Son of God to death. And so in verse 37, the text says they were pricked in their heart. They were bothered. Their conscience was disturbing them. And so they asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? What do we do about this? By inspiration, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, and please note the next four words, for the remission of sins. There's the reason why. For the remission of sins. Sins aren't remitted until that's completed. Sins aren't washed away until that's done. Is it any wonder that baptism is such a moment of celebration? When you and I have the privilege of watching someone be immersed we recognize they go into the water covered in sin, and they come out, sin's gone. And might we be quick to say, the power is not in the water. Water's a part of it because the Lord said so. But the power is found in the blood. And that's the way we contact or avail ourselves of the blood of Christ. The next thing on that slide is this one. Baptism is that moment of conversion. We note that in Acts 3 verse 19. As Paul, or rather Peter, preached on that occasion, he pointed out in lovingness to them about the nature of their conversion. And it was connected, of course, to their obedience in the matter of baptism. The moment at which our sins are washed away. Anything that has been said, anything that has been done, anything that has been thought anything that's offended one's own conscience, at that moment, those sins are forgiven. In the Word of God, I suppose there's nothing any higher than the consideration of a fresh start. Quite often, as you and I think about the beginning of a new calendar year, there are those who want a fresh start, so they'll make some resolutions. The greatest fresh start ever conceived is baptism. It's that life that's now lived after a person's been baptized. You're a new creature. You're not the same person that went into the water. 
In 2 Corinthians 5.17, we read there, All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That newness of life Paul spoke of in Romans 6.4 is the description of that which is after that matter of baptism. One last thing on that slide is the rejoicing aspect of the eunuch. Haven't you noticed it? As that Ethiopian nobleman was riding in the chariot and he didn't understand what he's reading, Philip, by the direction of the Spirit, joined himself to the chariot and he asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And the man said, How can I accept some man guide me? Philip joined himself to that chariot and for some period of time they talked and Peter spoke, or rather Philip spoke. But he preached Jesus is what the text says. But then they came to a point where there was some water, apparently in eye distance of the roadway. And it was the eunuch that said, Hold it! Here's some water. Why can't I be baptized? Philip said, If you believe, you can. They both went down in the water. Philip baptized him. And then the next verse says, The eunuch went on his way rejoicing. He didn't rejoice before he was baptized. He didn't have any reason to. But now he did because he was saved. Now he did because his sins were forgiven. Now he did because he was a new creature. And that's the time today you and I can rejoice. Do you remember after you were baptized? The way you felt? The understanding that was connected to what you then were? It was a great feeling, wasn't it? That kind of feeling is, you see, part and parcel. Not that it's merely a feeling, but because it's based on statements of the Word of God, it's what is a new creature. As you close that slide with me, one last thing I would offer. We began this lesson by noting there are those who will say that baptism isn't essential. They'll offer the thought that you can be saved and then at some time later you're baptized if you want to be. May I offer the following thought as to how illogical that is? Think of it this way. And I would offer you the thought of it in connection to a corpse. When a person dies, we understand that they're dead. And we, we, we then bury the corpse. Do you ever, ever bury a live body? We all know the answer to that. That's not only nonsensical, it's illegal. A funeral director that buries a live body can be imprisoned. You don't bury live bodies. And yet, if a person is saved and only later baptized, you're burying a dead person. If that person's already saved, he or she is alive, and then you bury them? Absolute ridiculousness. That cannot be. No wonder the Bible presents baptism the way it does, it does because that's the way it is. You aren't alive until you're baptized spiritually. At the most basic level, you and I perhaps could close our lesson by making a connection to faith. Baptism, you see, is described that way in the Word of God. At the most basic level, faith is simply this. I understand that we can speak in lofty terms about faith, but it's basically this, doing what God said, the way God said to do it, for the reason God said to do it. That's faith. No wonder then in connection to baptism, 
faith is what leads us to baptism. Colossians 2.12, in fact, directly teaches that. Buried with Him in baptism. There's our discussion of baptism. And then it goes on to say, in relation to the operation of the faith of God. So our faith leads us to be baptized. Isn't it beautiful to recollect that Jesus was baptized? If you and I would wish to be like Him, He was baptized in Matthew 3. In fact, one of the sermons next month, we're going to give some, some due attention to that baptism and the features characteristic of it. Interestingly enough, as you and I then obey from the heart, that form of doctrine which has been delivered to us in the words of Romans six seventeen, we too will joyously and with great excitement desire to be baptized. It reminds us of what the Lord told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. A man must be reborn, must be born again. But then he identified in verse 5 that includes water and spirit. The water aspect of that is baptism. You're not born again unless you're baptized. And the Spirit's role in that is the particular teaching, the instruction that the Spirit has, has delivered to us. Having said all of that, let's close our lesson with one final observation drawn from 1 Peter chapter 3. I ask you to notice that passage for this reason. It has been a disturbing passage for many for a long time. It's not disturbing to you and me. But to those who have questions or controversies about baptism, this passage, perhaps more so than any other, has been the source of some real challenges. I'd like to read it beginning in verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the Spirit, I'm sorry, put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also He went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The three words in that verse, verse number 21, that have been the source of such difficulty for many are, Baptism saves us. So to those who don't want to think that baptism saves us, what do you do with that verse? In the library at our house, there is a lengthy discussion in a book where a gentleman spends pages with great arguments from Greek and various other appreciations trying to explain away 1 Peter 3.21. That it doesn't mean what it says it means. That baptism really doesn't save us. This is really what Peter meant. May I ask, are we going to take Peter's word for it or are we going to take some scholarly person who expends great effort to try and make this say what it does not say? The text says baptism saves us. It says that in English. It says it in Greek. As you look at it, could I offer one final thought on that slide? The first three words of that verse were the like figure. In the previous verse, that referred to Noah's ark. Apparently, there's a beautiful set of comparisons between Noah's ark 
and baptism. Here are some of them. You probably can think of others. First, what about the construction of the ark? We all know that Noah constructed it according to what God directed him to. The length, the width, the height, the number of doors, the number of windows, the wood that was made of. What about this? That same God that gave him instructions relative to the ark has given instructions about baptism. In the same way that Noah and his family entered that ark, you and I enter the ark of safety today, the church, by way of baptism. Look at the next one. Noah and his family obeyed. Countless thousands chose not to. We know what their, their end, their fate was. Today, it's still the same. Those that are faithful will do what the Lord says. What about the third one? Those obedient, namely those eight aboard the ark, the text says they were saved. All the others drowned. They were lost. As you can see, there's a powerful connection between baptism and some of the features of it. Nextly, what about the place of water? The ark was a floating vessel. As the water lifted it to safety, baptism lifts us to safety. It lifts us to a place that is where we need to be. It lifts us to a, the place again of safety in the arms of the Lord. It is so sad that baptism over the course of the centuries has become something that divides those that supposedly follow the Lord. It was never meant to be divisive. It was meant to be unifying. Something everybody does and it has the same reason and the same benefit. Let's close the lesson like this. Baptism, according to that passage we just read, is the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in that way, baptism is a reenactment of what the Lord endured. In the same way that He died, our old man of sin dies. The Lord's body, because He died, was buried. In baptism, a person is buried because that old man of sin is dead. Jesus was resurrected on the third day. As you and I come forth from the watery grave, we rise to walk in newness of life. Baptism is the reenactment of the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. It is not an outward show of an inward grace. It is not something one does because one's already saved. It is what you and I have seen from the Word of God this morning. As we offer the Lord's invitation, we recognize that we each must be those that obey from the heart that form of doctrine. If there's a person in this assembly who's arrived at the point that your belief has convicted you, you're ready, you see, to follow the next steps, walking that road to becoming a saved person. It requires repentance, a change in life relative to the way one has been, with a desire to be what one would want you to be. The confession of the name of Christ as the only begotten Son of God, and then immersion in water for the remission of sins. It'd be our delight to encourage, to assist, and to help in any way we can. We would only ask you to let us know the way we can. Brother Cale has chosen a song of encouragement this morning, and we'll use this as a time to extend the invitation of the Lord. It may be that you have been baptized, but maybe you haven't lived faithfully. 
Come back to your first love. Remember what you felt. Remember the kind of person you were at the time when you were faithful. Come back to that kind of life. The Lord wants you there. That's where you need to be. And we'd be delighted to assist you in that as well. If you'll acknowledge those sins by way of repentance and confession, He's promised to forgive them. As we extend this invitation, if there's one or more that would wish to come, won't you do it now while together we stand and while we sing?